Good morning. My name is David, and the scripture reading this morning is from Acts. If you'd like to turn to it, it is chapter 9, verses 19 to 43. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled those Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was really a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the disciples. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord, and the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. As Peter drove, uh, traveled about the country, he went to visit the, Lord, the Lord's people who lived in Lydia. There he found a man named Aeneas, who was paralyzed and had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and roll up your mat. Immediately Aeneas got up. All those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. In Joppa there was a disciple named Tabitha. In Greek, her name is Dorcas. She was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time, she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa, so when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, please come at once. Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him, crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made, while she was still with them. Peter sent them all out of the room. Then he got down on his knees and prayed. Turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then she called for the believers, especially the widows, and presented her to them alive. This became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time, with a tanner named Simon. This is the word of God. Nice job, David. I'm sure if Peter could have drove around, he would have covered a lot more territory. The period of time we're looking at today, even though it's in one half of a chapter, really two-thirds of chapter nine, actually takes place over years. Our timelines are beginning to spread out now. And uh, we're actually looking at two parallel stories, two different journeys into spiritual maturity, that of Saul's and of Peter's. You know, when we were 
setting out to start a new church and looking for a name, we bantered around a lot of ideas and eventually settled on, as you know, the Journey Community Church. We're not the only Journey Church. You can find uh, several in New England. Of course, there's a couple of very large ones, one in New York City. And so when we first planted the church, people thought, well, are you part, are you like all part of a movement? And I said, no, no. And yes, Journey Community Church is not unique, but there are a lot more churches named First Baptist in New England. And the reason why we chose it was because of the idea that Jesus invites us into a journey with him. For too long, the church has reached out to people by saying, believe, and then you can belong. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus enfolded people on a journey. He said, follow me, and as we go, I will make you. Another invitation he gave in Matthew uh, is familiar to many of us when he said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This appears to be a two-part invitation because he goes on and says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. The first part of the invitation is to drop one burden, the burden of our self-righteousness, the burden of our brokenness, the burden of our moral transgressions, our sins, that weigh us down and keep us from the life that God intended us to do, keeps us separated from God. Jesus says, if you come to me, I'm gonna free you from that burden. You're gonna find rest for your soul. That's conversion. For many of us, we see that as the end of a very long journey. I've arrived, I've come to Christ. But that's actually not the end of the journey. That's the end of the search. It's the beginning of the journey. Jesus goes on and says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Think about this. He invites us to drop one burden and take on another. But his burden is easy and light. He invites us to come under his yoke. And it's characterized by learning of him. What Jesus is essentially saying is that all human beings were created as beasts of burden. Bob Dylan said it well. You're gonna serve somebody. We were meant to serve. We're our most fulfilling when we serve. The problem is we try to serve ourselves, our self-centeredness, our goals, our dreams. And we end up ultimately serving other powers and surrendering to them over us. We're meant to serve. We're meant to carry a burden, but the burden of Christ, which is life-giving, doesn't weigh us down. It brings us life. To come under the yoke is to come under his control, and that's the lifelong process. You see, Scripture says salvation is not just something that we experience when we're born into the body of Christ, but salvation is an ongoing and continuing experience. When we are born into the body of Christ, we are his children, but salvation is bigger than new birth. New birth is justification. Now that I've been justified, I am to grow in sanctification. At new birth, at justification, I'm saved from the penalty of sin, been forgiven, but as I grow in Christ, sanctification, I'm being saved, as Paul says, from the power of sin in my life. And the way Jesus described that is learning of him, growing into his ways, becoming more like him. Christ-likeness is the goal. Paul talks about this in Philippians chapter one. Let's say this together. 
being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. When we came to Christ, we became new creations, but we were diamonds in the rough. And God is now chiseling away, polishing us. Sometimes it's painful. Sometimes it's joyful. But it's all for the good. God is transforming us. And he is relentless about it. He's gonna continue that process. And the more we become like him, the more we can be used of him. So today, we look at aspects of that journey in the lives of two men. And we're gonna compare them. The first is Saul who at this stage in his life, although he's been a Pharisee, he's tremendously educated theologically, he's been a zealous follower of God. In true spiritual matters relating to Christ, he is an infant, he's taking baby steps. And we're gonna contrast that with Peter, who's taking giant leaps at this stage in his life. And hopefully along the way, you'll see some glimpses of uh, the journey that God calls each of us to. We're uh, again in Acts chapter nine. If you haven't turned there yet, would you do that? We're picking up this story right at the end of our study last week where Saul is dramatically converted on the road to Damascus. And what I'm gonna do with Saul's life is just talk through the story. Then when we get to Peter's journey, I'm gonna actually list seven ways that Peter is in step with the Holy Spirit and why God uses him so profoundly. We know several things about Saul at this point in his life. We learn from chapter seven, verse 58, when Saul was first introduced, which is at the stoning of Stephen, that Saul, first of all, is a young man. I think it's important that we capture that. But I wanna share two other things about Saul. Put a marker or your thumb in Acts nine and go with me to Galatians chapter one. This is an excellent passage to have as a cross-reference for this uh, study. Galatians chapter one, beginning at verse 11. I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism. Just wanna pause here. By the time Paul writes to the Galatians, he now refers to Judaism as a former way of life. Towards the end of his life, Christianity has emerged under its own identity, no longer just a sect of Judaism, but the very people of God, Jesus Christ's ecclesia, Christ's gathered ones, and it has achieved its identity as the fulfillment of the Old Testament, the true people of God. Whereas, at this point in the book of Acts, the followers of Jesus Christ were thought of as a, a sect, a heretical sub-movement inside Judaism that they refer to, as we've read, the way. Let's continue to read. For you have heard in my previous way of life in Judaism how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not consult any man, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was. But I went immediately into Arabia 
and later returned to Damascus. These are all important points we'll refer to in just a moment back in Acts. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God, what I'm writing you is no lie. Later I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they praise God because of this. So there's a couple of other things that we can glean from this personal telling of his conversion. He is an overachiever, (laughs) advancing well beyond many others his age in Judaism and Phariseeism. And as he puts it himself, he is extremely zealous. This is the spiritual zealot who becomes a Christian. I look back at at myself and can relate to the image of Saul that I'd like you to capture here because like a lot of young men, I was an overachiever and not necessarily out of health. I needed to know that I was achieving. I needed a checklist somehow. I had experienced a lot of uh, success. Very zealous about the things of God. I was passionate, but I was dangerous. When we experience a certain degree of success, but we're still young, there is an arrogance. There's a judgmentalism that we carry because we have yet to experience one of the most important ways that God shapes us, our own failures. That was Saul at this point. And so as we go forward, some important things that occur here that reveal what God has yet to do. In verse 19, just after he comes to Christ, for several days, it says he spent that time with the disciples. Saul immediately is enfolded by these people. I can imagine the fear and trepidation, but also the joy that the one that had been the greatest enemy of God, the poster child for the persecution, had been won over. It must have been great joy, and it must have been this new experience for Saul. And then we see that he immediately begins to preach. Well, why wouldn't he? He was a spiritual leader. Why wouldn't he immediately go to the local synagogue and begin teaching what he had discovered about Jesus? And so he immediately begins teaching. He grew in power, it says. And then this phrase, proving that Jesus is the Christ. Now, I think Luke's choice of words here are very important, especially when we contrast them with what we're going to see in Peter's life. What Saul was doing was winning theological arguments, proving scripturally that Jesus was the Christ. He's winning the arguments, but what's the result? They were astonished, baffled, it says. They are not convinced, and they're certainly not converted. One of the interesting things about Saul's first attempts at ministry is the startling lack of people coming to faith, as opposed to what we're going to see in Peter's life. There's no statement here that suggests anyone came to faith because of Saul's fervent debate. Yes, it refers to those in Damascus who were his followers, but think about that. That's a very unique statement. They were his followers. 
Saul was winning over people who probably were already committed to the arguments he was preaching, but there's a marked absence of people coming to faith as a result of his arguments. We move forward into the next scene, which begins with the words, verse 23, after many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him. We know from Galatians 1 that this period of many days was actually three years. He heads off to Arabia. We're not exactly sure what happens there. Paul speaks about being taught by Christ himself, caught up and envisioning things, some so glorious that he couldn't put words to them. He returns to Damascus, and boy, he's really winning friends and influencing people. It says that they conspire to kill him. Things aren't improving here. Now, let's be clear. People had conspired to kill other followers of Jesus, but there's something unique about how Luke is describing this situation. The gospel is to those who are perishing foolishness. I think What we're supposed to see contrasting Saul with Peter is that Saul is aggressively trying in the same way he used to debate against Christ. Now, through his own wisdom, through his own understanding, he's trying to debate for Christ. And the problem is he's not doing it with the cooperation of the Holy Spirit. Paul goes on and says, the gospel is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to those who are being saved. It's the power of God to salvation. How do people get in a place where they are being saved? That's the Holy Spirit's job. Those who are being saved, when I'm cooperating with the Holy Spirit and he's moving in people's hearts, tilling the soil, making it ready to receive the word, then when I bring the word, lives are transformed. We see a complete lack of that here and as a result, we see Paul escaping by a basket over the side of the city. Upon which he leaves finally for Jerusalem. The period of time here, as we saw in Galatians 1, of this little scene that we're about to look at is a mere 15 days. I can picture that Saul, for a very long time, longed to go back to Jerusalem. I'm sure he imagined what it would be like to finally walk into the apostles and apologize to them and tell the story of what Jesus did and join them in their mission of bringing the gospel to the ends of the world. I'm sure he pictured going back to the Hellenistic synagogue that he was a part of where he, along with all of the others, believed Stephen was worthy of death. He approved it. He stood watching it. He held the coats of those who committed it. I'm sure Saul longed to go back and tell them how wrong he was. Imagine what he's been picturing as he goes. And as you pick up the story, the disciples, the whole church, is afraid of him. They had heard of him, but they were scared to death when he finally shows up. So rather than being enfolded, he's kept at arm's length. Thank God for Barnabas. We're gonna learn more about Barnabas in the future, because he plays a big role in Saul's life about 10 years from now. He's a man of grace. And he sponsors Saul in, brings him to the apostles. We know from Saul's own story that the only ones that would meet with him were Peter 
And James, who is the brother of Jesus, heard Andy Stanley this week at the uh, Willow Creek Leadership Summit, said that it was the fact that Jesus' brother James got converted that is one of the great evidences for him, why he was able to really put his trust in Christ. Think about it. What would it take for you to convince your brother or sister that you're the son of God? If Jesus could convince his brother, I'm in. So he meets with Peter, and he meets with James, and it says he boldly preached the name of the Lord wherever he went. He went back to that Hellenistic synagogue, his home synagogue in Jerusalem, and aggressively began to debate those very leaders that had condemned Stephen to death, who Jesus Christ is. Do they come to Christ? No. They try to kill him. It becomes clear to everyone that Saul's presence is more of a problem than a help. And so he's literally shipped off to Tarsus, his hometown, where he will be off the scene, out of the story of Acts for the next seven to ten years. Now, what's the result of Saul being shipped off to Tarsus? Look with me at verse 31. Then the church throughout Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. Think about this. What was the best thing Saul did to help the cause of Christ in his early years? He got out of the way. He zealously made every effort. As far as we can tell, no one has come to faith. All he's done is stir things up. See, we can do that, create enemies, not because the gospel is the problem, but because we're the problem. We do it out of ourselves. We do it with anger. We do it aggressively. Winner take all. I'm going to convince you into the kingdom. I, I think that's the picture here because we move forward and see what happens in Peter's life. Let's go through what's going on with Peter. We see a couple of very major miracles, and let me list seven differences we see that show Peter is in full stride at this stage in his life, walking in step with the Holy Spirit. We see Peter, first of all, is on the move. Verse 32, as Peter traveled about the country. He's taking the gospel to Judea and Samaria. That's the second part of Jesus' prediction. And because he's on the move, God can direct him. It's much easier to direct a moving object. A lot of us sit back and say, well, I'd do something for God. I'd get off my, if God, <laughs> if God would just show me what I have to do, then I'd get up and get going. But that's not what happens. God expects us to be moving in whatever way we can right now, and then he directs us as we move. I don't have time today, uh, as it turns out, to tell you the story of a very powerful thing we were a part of years ago, 30 years ago, when, when worship, even as we're doing it here today, was not a common thing. Most uh, denominational churches, most non-charismatic churches 30 years ago still did three hymns, Gloria Patre, Doxology, all from the hymn book. Young people had no way to express their love for Christ in a way that was significant to them, and very few of those church leaders had any interest in making any changes. And we had the opportunity to be part of this movement of God. I guess I am telling you about it, aren't I? <laughs> it's a good story. I had the privilege in those years of doing a lot of youth speaking, and we were up at one camp 
in New Hampshire, boy, God just showed up. And we did this Friday night worship event that was not planned. In those days, you ended the week at a big campfire. Some camps still do that, and they do it well. But it becomes this very emotional thing. Sometimes it's about Jesus, but sometimes it's about everything else. Kids stand up, they throw a twig in the fire, and then they give a testimony. It becomes like, I thank God for Bobby. I thank God for my counselor. I love you always. It becomes a lot of emotional stuff, but not a whole lot of substance very often. And God had taught us so so many great things about pursuing him. We decided to forego the fire and have communion. We opened up that night and thought maybe we'd have maybe an hour communion service. Started about 9 o'clock at night, and we left that room about 3 a.m. God just really showed up. Kids just poured out their hearts to Christ. And I saw a generation of young people from all sorts of churches on their faces before God as we began just to sing and honor him. Some of you can't conceive of a day when that was rare, but it was rare back then. Those young people went back to their churches and were all enthused and their parents thought they'd gone off and joined some cult or something had happened. And so a couple of youth groups down on the South Shore that were part of it said, can you come and do what you did up there, but we'll invite our, our church, our family? So we planned this event. It was going to be in Foxborough. What we pictured was we'll just get together, we'll talk about a life of the pursuit of God, some of the ideas we shared that week, and we'll just invite them to sing more modern uh, worship songs blended with some updated hymns, things that we do routinely now. Went down to First Baptist Church, Foxborough. I expected between the youth groups maybe 40 or 50 kids. Word gets out, 350 kids show up. The church doesn't hold 350 kids. They're sitting in the choir loft. They're sitting on the stairs coming up. They're all around us. And we begin talking about this and we begin singing these songs that were just opportunities for young people uh, in a fresh way than they were being allowed on Sunday morning to give their hearts to God. and It was like pouring water on a dry sponge. It still stands out in my mind that one of the most powerful nights I've ever been a part of. And at that point, we believed that God was moving us to do something, that perhaps there was a need here and an opportunity that God was doing. And that was the beginning of a movement <laughs> that some people still today know as Raise the Praise. We came up with that name for that one night. It was really cool to spell things phonetically for about 15 minutes. And during that period, we came up with that name, R-A-Z, the P-R-A-Z. And unfortunately, it stuck. But fortunately, over the next 10 years, 60,000 young people showed up to these events all around New England. Today, those who are now adults are pastors, leaders in their churches, worship leaders, and they've dramatically transformed how we do church across New England. Then, nine years into it, we get invited to be a part of a gathering that Louis Giglio, who's the founder of Passion, just before he kicked off Passion, he invited several of us down to a retreat center in Atlanta, Georgia, And we heard stories of God doing that over and over again around the United States. And that group has become known as the worship generation. And we got to be a part of it. And what did we do? We just went to Foxborough. We were on the move. We just took the step that seemed to be the right step. And God did all the rest. 
Peter was on the move. Let me just quickly go through a few other. Peter is engaged with the people of God. It says he goes and he finds the believers. And while he's there, he also finds Aeneas. We don't know why he's lame, but we know that he's in bed for eight years. There's no indication here that Aeneas is one of the believers, one of the disciples. Dorcas, later on, clearly is listed as one of the believers. In fact, there is no place in the New Testament where it's clear that a believer in Christ was actually ever healed. You check that out. You'll find I'm, I'm right about that, I think. There's actually no place in the New Testament where we have a clear healing of a believer. It's typically unbelievers, and the result is them coming to Christ. What we do have are three instances of believers being brought back from the dead, being resurrected. The third thing we see is that Peter is exalting Jesus Christ. He says to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. Man, I wish I had that power when my kids were teenagers because I said that almost every morning. Get up, make your bed. He gets up. And what's the result? Many people come to Christ. What else do we see? Fourth, we see that Peter is responsive to God's leading. In a town nearby, Joppa, a woman named Dorcas who's part of the community, she's cherished for being diligent, a great servant of God and gracious and caring for many people. She dies. And rather than burying her right away, which is the tradition, they wash her body and they put her up in her bedroom. And it says they go to where Peter is and they invite him to come. Do not delay in coming to us. And Peter goes. He goes upstairs. They show all the garments, the things she's done to take care of people. Peter puts them out of the room. And then the next thing we see is that he's prayerful, even on his own. He's not, he doesn't pray for show. Gets on his knees, surrenders to Christ. Then out of whatever happens in his spirit, he simply says to her, Tabitha, arise. And she does. That's really powerful. We see, sixthly, that Peter was fruitful, verse 42. Many people believed in the Lord. But then we see this final scene. We see this final little verse that were we not going through the story the way we are, we may just think it's a little bookmark for us to put in place before we move to the next chapter. Look with me at verse 43. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. Now, again, you might just look at that and say, okay, so Peter, instead of continuing to travel, decided to plan himself as God was working and stay. But he stayed in the home of a tanner. Now, let me try to explain how big this was for someone like Peter, who was a devoted Jewish man. The Jews despised tanners because they worked with dead animals. The fact that Peter would stay in the home of a tanner speaks about the fact that Peter was learning the way of Jesus. The yoke was having its way. This is the bookmark for the next chapter. It's what God's doing in his heart. He's losing his prejudice. It started in Samaria just a couple chapters ago when he is brought there because of the work of Philip and he personally witnessed the Holy Spirit coming on the Samaritans and he recognizes that this thing that Jesus is doing is bigger than Judaism. It's bigger than the Jews. Now he's in the home of a tanner. 
breaking all Levitical law. You see, that's really important because the biggest discovery of Peter's life is just around the corner. The most important role Peter's gonna play in this whole story is about to take place. So when you compare Saul and Peter, you see some very interesting contrasts. Saul is sort of like that young seminary student who just wants to argue and debate and and beat you into agreement. Just like we used to do in Bible college. We'd argue election versus free will. Pre-tribulation rapture versus post-trib versus amil. Eternal security versus whatever that other view is. Saul is that guy. He's zealous. He's learning so much, but he's still operating in himself, not in the spirit. Saul has to be broken. I can imagine how he felt, what he pictured would happen in Jerusalem, embraced by the church. Instead, he's rejected by them. Going back to his home church to bring the truth to them, and all they want to do is kill him. Saul needed that. God makes us more like him when he's broken us. When we've reached the end of our success, I'm so thankful for the years that I went through not long ago that at the time seemed so unfair and were so devastating to me and my family where I first really and truly failed to hold on to something that I believed I was meant to be a part of. I'm so grateful for that. I've learned so much. I'm so much more surrendered to Christ, so much more understanding that it's not about what I know, what I've done, what I think about other people, that it's just all about Christ. It's all about Christ. It's all about what he does through. Have I, have I learned it all? No. You know why I know that? Because I'm still here. Christ will continue to do what he promised. I am certain of this. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion. We see Peter well on the way. He's already suffered. He's been refined. You know the story of Peter. And at this point, he's moved from arrogance to availability. He's moved from self-righteous and self-serving and self-saving to being a servant of the Savior. He's in step with the Spirit. God's doing that in your and my life. And we need to embrace every opportunity to get there. All right? Let's pray together. Just as you pray, bow your head. Just ask yourself, what circumstance in your life that you've seen as something you want deliverance from may actually be there as something through which God wants to shape you, bring you under submission to his yoke in your life, to transform you, to teach you his ways so that you can learn to move with the Spirit and your life can be one that is uh, powerfully fruitful for the kingdom. What circumstance can you see in a fresh way today and say, Lord, teach me, shape me, break me, remake me so that all that is seen is Christ. Whatever you do, do it. Where you lead, I'll follow. Amen.